Hello and welcome to the live premiere of episode number 250 of the Chillinoy podcast. If you're listening on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you listen to the Chillinoy podcast, you heard that right. Lately, we've been premiering new episodes live on our YouTube channel. Live premieres of our episodes are really fun because you can chat with me and fellow listeners of the Chillinoy podcast while the episode debuts. If you'd like to be notified on when we plan to premiere new episodes, I recommend you subscribe to our YouTube channel at chillinoy.net slash YouTube. In this episode, we talk about an investigation into Curaleaf with Grant Smith Ellis. In case you hadn't heard, there have been several headline reports about the company Curaleaf. Curaleaf is licensed to sell cannabis in the state of Illinois and several other states. Curaleaf is arguably the largest cannabis company in the United States, which is what makes this episode so interesting. In case you didn't know, we release all of our new content exclusively at patreon.com slash chillinois. So after this episode, if you'd like to watch more of our show, you can stream our newest episodes at patreon.com slash chillinois. I'm very excited to announce that we recently released a new episode featuring defense attorney Evan Bruno. Longtime listeners of the show will recognize Evan as he has appeared on the show several times. I'm especially excited to announce his return to the podcast because of the exciting announcement he makes during our show. I'll give you a hint. It's an issue that could cause cannabis users like you and I to be locked away in prison for simple possession of cannabis. Yes, you heard that right. In a state where cannabis is apparently legal, we are still locking people up for what starts with the simple possession of cannabis, which begs the question, is it really legal? Tune into our conversation with Evan Bruno to learn more. It's episode number 253, and it's available for streaming right now at patreon.com slash chillinoy. Well, I'm going to send you into this week's episode. Once again, if you're listening to this after the fact, you can tune into the live premieres of our episodes on YouTube if you subscribe to our YouTube channel. I think that's probably the best way if you'd like to be notified when we plan to have one of these premieres. I'd say subscribe to us on YouTube. I think the easiest way to do that would be by going to chillinoy.net slash YouTube and then click on the link, which will take you to our YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Chillinois podcast. I am your host, Cole Preston, and today I am joined by Grant Smith Ellis. Grant is a disabled grassroots policy activist from Massachusetts. He serves as the chairperson of the board of the Massachusetts Cannabis Reform Coalition, MassCan, works, and he works as a legal intern for the nonpartisan federal policy think tank Parabola Center, who you might be familiar with. He also studies law at New England Law in Boston and covers developments in the cannabis industry on a freelance basis 
for Dig Boston. He appears with us today in his individual capacity. You can find more from Grant and get early access to his on-the-ground reporting via patreon.com slash grantsmithellis, including exclusive newly breaking coverage of a regulatory investigation by Massachusetts officials into industry giant Curaleaf, something we will discuss today. Before I introduce Grant to the show, I just want to say that that link to Grant's Patreon will be in the podcast description. Support your journalists, folks. This is hard work, and uh, yeah, we need all the support we can get out here, right, Grant? <laughs> Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of this podcast. I'm a big fan of independent grassroots journalism, something I hope we'll get to talk a lot about today. So I really appreciate those kind words and the uh, link in the intro. Um, really, uh, grassroots journalism is a kind of ground up um, endeavor. Uh, there's a reason why we're able as grassroots journalists to cover topics that would never, ever, ever get approved at a corporate publication or something like that um, because sponsors wouldn't like it or whatever it may be. So grateful to be here. Um, I wear a lot of hats, uh, as I said, uh, as the uh, Cole said on the intro, I'm here in my individual capacity, uh, but primarily I'm a medical patient, a grassroots policy activist. Um, I also do um, a little bit of reporting. I cover the monthly uh, Cannabis Control Commission hearings, which is the regulatory body in Massachusetts charged with overseeing the adult and medical use industry dating back to uh, 2017. Um, those monthly broadcasts. I'm actually just starting to do them with Eric Casey, who's a wonderful uh, colleague of mine that runs a substack called Burn After Reading that folks should also check out. You can catch our coverage of those monthly hearings. Uh, it's normally the first or second Thursday starting at 9.30 in the morning. Right now it's facebook.com forward slash grantsmithellis. We may create a Twitch as well. Um, but yeah, that's sort of what I do. I keep an eye uh, on things and I try to get uh, information out to the people that I think will protect the integrity of our lawmaking process from the subversive interests of corporate forces well hey thank you for what you do thank you for your time today and before we get into the big story uh for today and and you know thank you for for doing your due diligence on this one i just wanted to ask you you know um if there was anything i didn't mention or um i really what i'm asking you is What's your back? Just before we get into it, what's your backstory? How'd you find yourself to where you are today? I, I have a feeling you have a love for cannabis, but I'd love to hear about it. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I really do like cannabis, but where I um, entered into kind of the grassroots policy arena was I was a graduate student actually at uh, Boston College where I had done my undergrad work as well. Uh, and it was the spring of 2014, May 6th of 2014, actually, a day that I will never, ever forget. Um, I became disabled. Uh, I had a surgery in 2008, uh, and over the next six years, there were some complications that eventually caused my esophagus and airway to start penetrating into each other, um, which caused kind of a cascade of other issues um, sort of throughout my body. Um, I have some nerve issues into my face and, and eyes and things like that. Um, but in any event, I had to leave graduate school. And at the time, I wanted to be a Jesuit priest. Um, I wanted to, to enter the priesthood, to study Immanuel Kant and develop a quantitative methodology to examine the cogency of public discourse as an indicator of political legitimacy in liberal republics. And I really loved it because I thought, well, there's this machine learning that's coming out. This was 2014. So this was really at the cutting edge of kind of the, the, the machine learning era, which is where you look at text through an algorithm to analyze its content. 
And um, I I really loved what I was doing. Uh, so it was heartbreaking to kind of be ripped out of that world. Uh, but what happened as a result was I, I met a medical cannabis caregiver. Uh, this was the early days of the medical program in Massachusetts, 2014 or so, the Wild West, really the Wild West. One of I was one of the first few medical patients. I actually went to uh, I think the first ever medical dispensary on the first ever day it opened in Massachusetts because there was no other options. Um, I didn't know about caregivers at the time, which is where I'm going with this story. But uh, anyway, so there were there are two options for medical patients to get cannabis in Massachusetts, um, regulated medical dispensaries, obviously, or um, home grow caregivers. Now, home grow caregivers are people who grow for um, pro bono. So you, they can charge for their material and cost, but not for their time or labor or anything like that. And uh, I met one of these caregivers through some kind of free forum or something like that. And um, he started bringing me medical cannabis on a monthly basis, which allowed me to kind of avoid taking some of the harder uh, narcotics that the doctors wanted to give me at the time for my neuralgia. Well, six I don't know, 12 months after that point, it was about 2016, maybe 2017, right as adult use was happening. Someone, it turned out to be an industry front group, got my caregiver named in a big publication. And a few weeks later, he got arrested by the Quincy police. And I lost that access pathway. And as a byproduct of losing that access pathway, I got involved with grassroots activism because I said, never again, am I going to be confronted with a situation where the influence of these companies through an artificial front group is going to take away a pathway for vulnerable patients in the interest of protecting corporate profit. And from there, I don't know, it's been quite a roller coaster of the past, however many years it is now, six, five, six, seven, uh, but it's been a lot of fun and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, cool. Thank you for giving us this backstory or that backstory rather. Um, you know, I, I, I want to start with, so for our Cura Leaf story, if you're ready to get into that, I have a graphic that you and Eric Casey, shout out to Eric, uh, like you said, gr doing great work out there. Um, I've got a graphic you both made. I, I think it's good to start there, but then I think we should back up. And I, because I remember where I first heard about this story, but I'm curious to hear where you first heard about this story. So um, let me display this graphic. And for folks that are listening right now, chillinoy.net slash video is the way to watch. Um, Grant, do you mind reading this for our listening audience? I'll try to get this banner out of your way here. If you can, are you able I, to oh, see no, it? I can see everything. Yep. Um, okay. Good. Yeah, sure. So the, again, as you mentioned, um, this is a banner that was put to a, a flyer or a graphic that was put together by the um, incomparable Eric Casey. Please check out Burn After Reading. It is an amazing substack. And unlike me, who just provides video coverage of eight-hour regulatory hearings, Eric actually synthesizes them in an easy-to-read format. As you can see, he's very good at that. And so you can get those synthesized versions of the CCC hearing by subscribing and please do it. It's worth it. Um, so Eric put together this graphic based on my reporting. Um, it was actually really fun. It was one of the first times I've done a story where we embargoed the material we were reporting on um, until, um, you know, an agreed upon deadline so that we could all report on it. There were multiple journalists working on the story, all report on it at the same time, which I thought was wonderful. I thought it was really important in this context, and we'll see why in a second. Uh, so it starts off Cure Leaf under scrutiny, and uh, Eric says Grant Smith Ellis, and then gives my hashtag or my username, which is at Grant Smith Ellis, is reporting that the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission (CCC) is looking into three potential regulatory violations made by Cure Leaf. The first graphic, uh, the first uh, bubble says hidden ties to Russian billionaire. 
Reporting by Forensic News recently alleged that Russian oligarch Roman Abrahimovich made a series of secret investments in the company and its two largest shareholders, totaling at least $410 million, uh, United States dollars. These secret investments may violate state regulations uh, related to uh, disclosures of the um, investments. Uh, number two, an unregulated research lab. Cureleaf has been accused of operating their research lab in Newton since 2019 without receiving a final license or really any license of any kind from the state. Uh, the first license that uh, Cureleaf got for that Newton facility, which we'll get more into, was in November of 2022, uh, provisional license. Uh, the company allegedly diverted materials from its cultivation facility to conduct product development, which is true. Uh, according to my reporting, uh, they use the mail, according to my reporting, to get product from one part of the state to the other. That's really not OK. Uh, and they also diverted regulated product out of a regulated facility to a non unregulated facility, according to my sources. Uh, and then number three, a secret remediation machine. Folks who follow uh, the industry will know the controversy about radiation use on cannabis. Uh, the company has also been accused of secretly using a radiation based remediation machine to sanitize products. Whistleblowers have accused the company of high use of the machine from investigators during inspection. And in fact, my source in the company said that the way that this was done was it was put um, behind a door with a sign saying out of order maintenance. Uh, but that's according to an employee uh, allegation. Um, so that is where we are with the graphic. But as you said, I think there we should go back a little bit, talk about how this story came about. But that was the end result. There is an active investigation. The story came about because the Cannabis Control Commission gave me an on the record quote confirming that they could not talk about any of those three um, allegations because there's an active inquiry, which is akin to saying there's an investigation. We cannot talk about any of this. So that's where we are. Okay. And thank you so much. That was perfect. I couldn't have done it better myself. Um, for folks, really quick before we peel back the page, please, uh, for folks that may not be familiar with radiation and why there's uh, concerns slash controversy around it, can you give us a quick blurb on that? Oh, sure. So um, radiation um, of cannabis is used throughout the industry. In fact, all Canadian cannabis is irradiated. A lot of United States cannabis is irradiated, but it's controversial. And it's not, it's not that the company needed approval to radiate the cannabis or anything. It's just companies like to keep the secret because there's a consumer. And I think rightfully so a consumer hesitancy surrounding product that they consumers and medical patients know to have been irradiated. Now, in terms of what irradiation does. Well, okay, there's two consequences. The first consequence is with regards to what it does to the chemical composition of the cannabis flower in question. Um, because it involves heat, um, I'm told by knowledgeable sources that two things can happen. Number one, um, THCA can get converted into Delta-9 um, so if you're looking for a potential marker to indicate irradiated bud and you're a consumer reading a product label, if you see uh, Delta 9 in your lab panel result on the um, end uh, product, that is likely irradiated bud, according to my sources. Um, number two, it impacts the terpene um, composition of the flower um, in a certain way. It degrades the terpene profile and reduces terpene levels now. Terpenes are not just a, f a flavoring. Terpenes are an integral component to the effect of cannabis flower as a medication and as a substance. Uh, so both of those things are concerning because it impacts the, the, the product being consumed. What's more concerning, and um, there's a great medical patient, uh, Lorna McCafferty from Dudley. I really want to give her credit. Uh, I work with her. She's also very informed about the industry. And she gave me a quote for the story, basically, I think, highlighting what the core of the, the issue is, which 
as much as it is impacting the chemical composition of the bud, the real scary issue is that if companies have things like uh, bud rot, uh, which is very common in Massachusetts because of like the growing conditions um, or um, mold uh, or anything that could compromise the, the, the flower, their, their product, they can remediate it away. They can actually get it to pass testing despite the presence of those contaminants. Now, this plays into a much larger problem, which has to do with sample selection and testing labs. Um, now, that's also in my story, a great quote from Commissioner Roy, uh, Kimberly Roy of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission, who's become kind of a champion on this issue. Um, if you take a look at what she says uh, in my article, she basically says, so there's a there's an anti-competitive and a consumer protection problem if companies are selecting their own samples for testing and then testing labs are given a perverse incentive to pass contaminated product and inflate THC results to attract clients. Um, it undermines the market because testing labs trying to do the right thing can't get clients because everyone wants to go to the labs that will cheat the results and inflate the THC content to get more customers. Um, and then it creates a consumer protection serious consumer protection issue because you're putting contaminated product, as Ms. McCafferty said, onto the market. Uh, so that's where we are with radiation. It's not just the impact on the bud itself. It's the impact on the overall process of how potentially contaminated product can get onto the market. Thank you so much for breaking that down, dude. You're a fucking machine. Again, couldn't have said it better myself. And I think it's really important that you say that, or that, like that you mentioned it, Irradiation is used in different areas of our life, and it's not so much that you're going to get like supercharged from the weed. We're not saying that. It's what we're saying is that the reason these companies might have an incentive to hide it is because when people hear things like this, they think they start to wonder about the product. Right. So we're not alleging like. I mean, I, I agree with you, first of all, that it does like dry out the product, take away from the terpenes and, and minimizes. But we're not saying it does anything like any more than that, like that it, you know, will give you nuclear exposure or anything like that. So I just wanted to be clear for folks because people will like jump and be like, hey, you're I want to make sure I want to be clear that we're not being sensationalist about this. So anyways, um, moving forward, thank you again for for breaking this down. I wanted to ask you when you first heard about this story. Um, and I, if I may, I wanted to start with how I first heard about the story because I'm just curious. I first heard about this story and I don't even know how I started following this person on Twitter. You know, that happens sometimes you just thought they tweet something brilliant and you follow them. And so I don't know how I started following this person, but their name is betting bruiser on Twitter. And I first saw them make allegations that cure relief had ties to Russia and um, I remember very quickly people were it because it was at the time when Ukraine and, and all that was kind of I mean, it's still crazy. I don't mean to say that it's gotten any better, but it's, you know, it was starting. And so it was in the forefront of everybody's mind um, and it was a new thing and, and all this stuff. So people quickly, from my perspective, started calling him xenophobic and there's no basis for this story. And you're just just because Boris may have been from Russia. You're you're like, I don't know exactly what the allegations were because they were all over the map. But I remember seeing that and it just kind of died. And I remember Boris acknowledged it and denied it. I do remember that because this person has pulled up those tweets. Um, and then all of a sudden I saw official reporting on it, I think within the last two months or so. And then I've seen your reporting. And so here's where I am. And I don't quite understand the depth of the story so i think that's going to be helpful today but yeah i thought it'd be interesting to start 
where did you hear about this story? And then maybe we can seg, you can just go deep from there. You know, I feel like that's probably a, a smooth transition. Sure. Yeah. So I think it's important to understand that there's two separate things going on here. There's the initial back in 2019 or earlier um, um, suspicions of Russian connections between Kirillov and and um, otherwise because of Boris Jordan, um, who was actually born in the United States. Um, but of course, in the 1990s and after Perestroika and the fall of Soviet Union, um, this gentleman was quite involved and he has a friend um, who I'm not going uh, to, to, to name because I cannot pronounce it, but we can pull it up. Uh, another one of the owners, I think he owns 21% of Kira Leaf. You can find that on the Forbes site. Um, block, block, Audrey Block, Block, B-L- E-C-H. I, I might be spelling that wrong, so I'll wait for your correction. Um, but these two gentlemen uh, in the early 1990s uh, were intimately involved with the emergence of what I guess you'd call a hybrid form of oligarchical driven capitalism in Russia following uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Um one of the gentlemen became a dairy magnet, I think. Um, and then I think Jordan was involved in oil. Uh, so these guys made a lot of money. And if you don't know, if, for the listeners who don't know a lot about perestroika and kind of the emergence of post-Soviet um, capitalism, that's the gentleman, B-L-O-K-H. Um, the emergence of Soviet-based um capitalism as sort of its own form of um, hybrid government after the fall of the Soviet Union, especially in Russia. Uh, these oligarchs, um, especially people who came out of the KGB like Putin, they were able to centralize control over almost every industry uh, in Russia. Uh, and you can read there's reporting from almost every major outlet in the entire world about this. And the way that that happened was to just this kind of vicious political um Game of Thrones, quite literally. And um, obviously what emerged from that is kind of the modern Russia that we know under the sort of authoritarian strongman style of Putin, which led to the invasion of Ukraine. But behind the scenes is this oligarchic class of oligarchs, which facilitated Putin's rise and which Putin actually kind of rules with a, an iron fist. And these gentlemen, although Boris Jordan is um, American born, these gentlemen were intimately involved in that. Now, OK, so your question about when you initially learned about it, when did I initially learn about it? I, I initially learned about the first thing you're talking about, which is Boris Jordan's relationship to Russia, just as you did, you know, on social media many years ago. I don't I think that's part of the story, but that's not really the story. You know, Boris Jordan's connection to Russia is part of the story, but it is not obviously the story. So that kind of whole incident is kind of something that's relevant, but it's part of the historical record. And it's not really what's going on now. Um, what's going on now did indeed start two, um, maybe a month ago, uh, December 23rd, I think was the first article that um, Forensic News published on this. It might have been December 22nd of 2022. And uh, it was by Scott Stedman and Matt Bernardi, the first article, and it it, it confirmed something entirely different, uh, which is that there was a Cyprus-based investment company um, can, owned by Roman Abrahimovic, uh, who used to be the former owner of Chelsea Football Club. Uh, he's an Israeli-Russian dual citizen 
um, used to be heavily influential in the United Kingdom until he was sanctioned by the European Union and um, other entities for his connections to um, President Vladimir Putin of Russia after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, when the world kind of saw this cascading series of sanctions issued against anyone who was close to Putin, especially the oligarchs who use their um, dual citizenship sometimes of different countries to be able to travel around the world and kind of live luxurious lifestyles while at the same time being, you know, intimately involved with um, an authoritarian uh, strongman regime uh, run by a dictator. Uh, so in any event, uh, we get to a situation whereby Scott Stedman and Matt Bernardi from Forensic News on December in December of 2022 are reporting that a Abrahimovic uh, had lent a pre uh, a company um, that uh, Curaleaf didn't take on the name Curaleaf until they consolidated ownership of four co uh, companies in the Northeast, one in Connecticut, two in Maine, a few in Massachusetts, um, Massachusetts Organic Therapy, Maine Organic Therapy, and I, 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 I Curaleaf was the Connecticut version. Uh, and it was actually a company called P P Palantir. I, I read it more than I say. Palliatech, it looks Palliatech, like. correct. And when Curaleaf was Palliatech, it received an, an initial loan from the company uh, associated with Mr. Ibrahimovic, uh in the amount of 80 or $100 million or something along those lines. And that's what Scott Stedman and Matt Bernardi first reported. And that's what caused, you know, shockwaves. Now, what's really interesting is how things played out after that initial report. The reason why that initial report is such a concerning revelation is because in Massachusetts and in other states, regulated operators have a duty uh, to inform um, oversight authorities like the CCC about any indirect or direct ownership or control interests, say, for example, hundreds of millions of dollars in loans from a Russian oligarch. Uh, and that was not done with Mr. Abrahimovich. <laughs> so Curaleaf responds initially. They put out their first uh, statement in response to um the forensic news article just a few days after, uh, I think right around Christmas, uh, it was a it was a tweet that they put out. Uh, but then. Map uh, Scott Stedman follows up with another article, I think, on December 29th of 2022, basically Curaleaf in their first statement denied everything, um, denied that the loans were still active, et cetera, et cetera. Then uh, Stedman puts out follow up reporting on forensic news again on December 29th, saying the loans were hundreds of millions. Some of them came after the start of the Ukraine war. They were still active as late as 2021 or 2022. Um, and that at that point, Curaleaf puts out another statement, uh, which I think is fascinating. Uh, that's the December 29th, 2022 article. Yep. Perfect. And you can what's fascinating to me about this, and I love sort of the art form of the way companies try to do this, despite how evil it is. In response to the December 29th, 2022 article, Curaleaf puts out another statement via tweet, but this time they don't put out a tweet. They respond to Chris Honeybee, who's a great activist on Twitter. He owns a company. Um, great, great guy. Follow him. I love sharing his stuff. Yeah, he's uh, been on our show. He's good. Oh, guy. that's that's awesome. I've so smoked you, weed. I've smoked his weed and stuff. Anyways, keep um, going. I'm jealous. One day I hope to do that. Um if you take a look at their second statement, I think they put it out like the 30th, maybe the 29th. I'm talking about Curaleaf. They just replied a, a, a tweet Chris made. That's how they put out their statement. They just replied to Chris. And it's fascinating to think about that dynamic. Uh, but that second statement insults forensic news. It says the um, the 
Uh, that uh, yeah, you want to scroll up? So no, not that one. That one's might be the one for about me. Um, no, uh, wh where are we? Uh, you want to look for a reply to Chris Honeybee? Okay, we're and we're in January twenty, so I might be too. I'm I'm I might need to go back further. Oh yeah, it's going to be back um December twenty ninth. So, okay. um, but as we scroll, uh, they say in that statement that's just a tweeted reply to Chris Chris Honeybee. The forensic news follow-up article was anything but forensic. And you know, at least in my opinion, the second a company is attacking a journalist with a pun, they're in deep trouble. They are really in deep trouble. Um, so that Curly puts out its second statement. And then there's a bit of a lull, right, from December 29th uh, until really uh, two days ago, uh, January 19th. And during that time, uh, a certain intrepid reporter from the state of Massachusetts is intent on getting the Cannabis Control Commission to confirm that they've taken this report and acted on it by starting an investigation. And thus began a, what was it, 20-day saga where every minute of my life was filled with pensive anxiety as I tried to get this story confirmed and on the record. Now, regarding your... Um, other question about when did I first Found find it. out about this? Oh, are we going to get to see it? There we go. And look, see, I told you it was a reply to Chris. Uh, you, so yeah, so, here's Chris's tweet. Yeah. And then look, they just re they don't even put out a statement. They just reply to him and they're like, hey, here's our statement, Chris. Like what? What a weird thing to do. The forensic news article was anything but forensic. And we we reiterate the facts. To correct the record, Curaleaf and its primary shareholders do not owe outstanding funds to Mr. Abramovich, nor to any person sanctioned in the U.S., U.K., or E.U. Mielastov and Cetus did not loan Curaleaf and its lar two largest shareholders a total of $410 million. And there's more here, folks. We'll include links to all this stuff in the podcast description. Sorry, you were about to go. You were saying your days were filled in with intrepid stress. You were trying to confirm confirm and i believe you were saying you got the confirmation when i pulled up this tweet yeah so january 19th i get the on the record statement that there's an investigation not into not just into the great reporting from forensic news uh which was initially what was really driving me uh but also into some stuff that i had been looking into for months um over a year actually uh one um thing being an unregulated uh testing lab uh that Curaleaf was running uh dating all the way back to 2019 according to sources from within the company and then of course the radiation machine uh but i want to wrap up the uh russian aspect of this and then uh talk a little bit more about uh this testing lab and then the radiation uh so the russian component of it the that part of the investigation i cannot do too much analysis because i have some insight i think into larger forces at play regarding that investigation based on the way my inquiries were handled uh, but it's not appropriate for me uh, at this time to uh, go further into what i think is driving um the um targeted ambiguity of the response uh, to these revelations regarding the Russian component of the story in particular. Um, the I think folks can take from that what they may, um, but I don't think this is the last, this is the first or last thing we're going to hear on the Russian connection. And I don't think that 
the analysis of the impact of that uh, funding is limited just to ownership and control in the context of the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission, but I'll leave it at that. Um, moving on to the unregulated testing lab. This is perhaps, I mean, it's not a bigger issue than what we just talked about, because what we just talked about is a very, 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 very big issue that has international ramifications. Uh, but if not for that, then the second element of the story would have itself been probably the largest uh, revelation in the past, I don't know, month related to the Cannabis Control Commission, which is saying something because there's always something going on in Massachusetts. Uh, and this this really goes to something very concerning, which is that according to sources uh, from within the company that I talked to a number of different sources uh, who didn't know each other and independently verified this information, Pureleaf was running in Newton, Massachusetts, a facility dating back to 2019. Their uh, head of research um, and, and testing, no, I think just head of research, uh, testing is a, a different department. Their head of research was running an unlicensed testing lab. And Cureleaf was getting the product for this testing lab in two ways. One, it was, according to employees, diverting regulated product just out of its Webster cultivation facility and then bringing it to Newton. And then, I mean, that's itself a huge deal. That is not okay. Uh, but then even more concerning, um, employees told me that the company was mailing THC product from Webster to Newton, which is a violation of federal law, not to mention a violation of the diversion guidelines for the regulators. And that was the basis then of further reporting on what was happening at this test, this research lab. Now, I got to put some context here because I said in November 2022, Cureleaf got a research license and it was for this location. The CCC gave them a provisional license for a location that, according to multiple employees, was being used for illegal human research on THC products shipped through the mail and illegally diverted from regulated facilities dating back to 2019. Now, what they were doing at this research facility dating back to 2019, apparently, was taking concentrate and flour and making it into test beverages and test types of shatter and et cetera, and then giving it out as free samples to employees who were then basically having products tested on them with no oversight. And I mean, it's one thing it's one thing to give a sample to someone and not record it. I think that's not good, but I'm not going to take you to the mat because I, because you gave free cannabis to someone. But you cannot conduct unlicensed, unregulated human experimentation with no oversight. There's a reason we have internal review boards. There's a reason there is a process for doing human experimentation. Um, that alone... That whole series of events and the, the testing products on um, employees without a license and sending unregulated product to this place to do this research, that impacts not just Cureleaf, but the CCC and the integrity of the regulatory apparatus and the credibility of the agency and the faith that the public and lawmakers and the appointing authority have in this body which is something that a lot of us um, take very seriously. So that, and I, I will pause here because I know you have a lot to say and weigh in on, that really struck me. When I found out that was happening and then was able to confirm it, 
um, my jaw hit the floor. I've never heard anything like it. I it's 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 scary that it was able to happen for that long. Yeah, I think you know I have I only have a few thoughts, and then uh, you know we can maybe return to the topic of the uh, the third blurb that or the third topic we have on these stories and and more. I think you said you had a scoop that recently dropped, but my thought just yeah, I just wanted to you know dwell on the fact that they were diverting product through from your according to your reporting through the united states mail and just just not even to get specific of the the method of which they did it the fact that they did it like here here's a point that i've made on the show a a few different times you know citizens like myself have possession limits and it's very strict how i can transport the cannabis and i can get in big trouble if i exceed my limits meanwhile Everybody that's licensed in Illinois, there's no concept of a transport limit. The con- the, the transport limit is how much you can fit into a van <laughs> that you can take to all your stores, right? And so this is like another way where they're just playing by another set of rules. And I what I mean to say is if we would have done anything like that, like if I would have cultivated cannabis myself and sent it through the mail and was providing it to people, like these are all things that are explicitly against the law in Illinois. And you would there's no shadow i am not i don't doubt at all that they would try to make example an example out of somebody like me or you know anybody doing that because it's easy but then these companies like i say play by a whole different set of rules i guess just one last thought grant in the spirit of this is like we've got uh cannabis events right in the state of illinois and they're starting to become more of a thing and the question has always been like how do these vendors get the cannabis there because they're not allowed to dispense cannabis except for at a dispensary. So how are they? And and if we all have possession limits, how are they getting it there? And so it's interesting. We did find reporting that one particular vendor that works with these companies says that what they do is they have their employees, you know, each purchase their maximum amount and then bring it to the location. Okay. That's all good and well. Gifting is legal in Illinois, but here's my point. They do that multiple times. And so at a, at a certain point, you've got this lump sum of cannabis that's to be used for the event. And it's like, who's who's in possession of that? Who? How does this work? And I'm just saying, if anybody else did that, they'd probably get in trouble. So it just feels like another case in which we're playing by two sets of rules. That's kind of my thought that I had on that. And maybe you weren't expecting it, but um, yeah, curious. What yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. You're, you're right. Um, and I think that for me, um, I do a lot of anti-trust uh, work, uh, which is to say I like to break up uh, vertical uh, consolidation or even horizontal consolidation of markets uh, a la Teddy Roosevelt in 1905 in response to Northern Steel or um, uh, Standard Oil uh, or otherwise. Um, and what's what's important to, to understand about what you're asking is that the power for government agencies to engage with the property of corporate persons is defined by something called the police power. Um, I'm not talking about like the police. I'm talking about the power of a state government to engage in things like fines um, or other punitive action. Now, as individual human citizens, 
um, we are protected by the Bill of Rights. Um, you have a right to a lawyer. You have a right to um, not incriminate yourself. You have a right against unreasonable search and seizure. You have a right to free speech, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of those rights apply specifically when you're charged with a crime. Now, many people would think, and I fully support people who do think this because it's what I would hope would be the truth, that those rights for individual human beings are stronger than the rights for what we would call an artificial human being, uh, which is to say a corporate person. Um, but that is not true. That is fundamentally not true. And it has to do with, um, there's a great case. It's actually my favorite all-time Supreme Court case, not because of the majority holding, but because of the dissent. And it's from 1939. It's called Connecticut General Life Insurance v. Johnson. And in that case, uh, Justice Hugo Black, um, one of the most uh, renowned Supreme Court justices of all time, writes a dissent. And in that dissent, uh, it starts, the dissent starts Mr. Justice Black dissenting, for those of you who want to go read this opinion and find this dissent. Justice Black lays out something that um, happened in 1886 uh, in the course of another one of my favorite cases, which is Santa Clara County versus Southern Union Pacific. And Justice Black explains how the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution um, was passed in the wake of the Civil War to um, protect a race uh, liberated from slavery, uh, the, the, the black race in the United States. But what happened was by the 1880s, partially due to the fact that Reconstruction was kind of usurped by um, the South um, after uh, Lincoln was assassinated. So kind of from like the presidencies of like Johnson and and Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes and uh, Chester A. Arthur and Garfield, all the way up basically until like McKinley in the late 1890s, you have like a very reactionary um, uh, Congress and Supreme Court that has two perspectives. One, um, Southern states should be able to basically re-enslave Black people in all but name. And two, um, the corporations should be absolved from any oversight by uh, state governments. And the what is the most frustrating part of this, and I would have been screaming it from the rooftops if I were alive, just like Edith Tarbell and Lincoln Steffens and S.S. McClure and uh, uh, a lot of the uh, muckrakers uh, at the time were doing. What was so frustrating was the Supreme Court was saying, hey, listen, this 14th Amendment that uh, Congress passed to protect black uh, Americans, what we actually read it to do is protect corporations. And not only that, we're going to say that these uh, that the 14th Amendment means states can't regulate companies. Now, this was called the liberty of contract doctrine, and it lasted all the way until West Coast Hotel v. Uh, Parish in 1937. But I want to talk about one more important thing, which is how this happened. It's when folks read this dissent, it's I'm not making this up. I'm very theatrical because I like to translate it into modern language. But when you read this dissent, every single thing I have just said, you're going to read in a Supreme Court justice's sort of voice with citations, and it, it will blow your mind. This part, however, it takes the cake. When the Supreme Court interpreted the 14th Amendment in uh, Santa Clara County versus Southern Union Pacific in 1886, they didn't actually say 
the 14th Amendment protects corporations. No, what happened was a court reporter's headnote, which is what's called a summation of the decision, included a reference to a secret purpose hitherto unrevealed on the part of the framers of the 14th Amendment to protect corporations during secret negotiations in the lead up to its passage. That is the origin of the constitutional doctrine of corporate personhood, which created the bifurcated conditions that allow corporations to be treated with kid gloves when they violate the law, whereas individual humans are made examples of. It's horrific. It's an absolutely a usurpation of this republic and it reflects the very worst form of lawmaking that we are now having to as a grassroots movement spend decades undoing and i absolutely 100 percent blame that reactionary sort of southern driven congress and executive from 1863 until the election of McKinley in uh, 1896 for why this happened. And if more folks understood it, I think there would be a more sort of cogent and direct form of discourse about these corporations should be treated the same exact way in terms of law, if not more strictly than we are as citizens. Gosh, thank you for breaking that down. I did not know that. And so I, I are, I have a feeling that a lot of my audience just learned a lot too. So Hey man, uh, we've got the secret remediation machine topic, but yeah, I was about to say I didn't, I haven't seen you spark up yet, so I wanted to give you a moment to to inhale some cannabis. Uh, so, um, yeah, well, so for folks that are listening, spark up some cannabis, and we're about to talk about uh, interesting part of the story of this story that we've already kind of touched on, and it's the secret remediation machine. I did, I guess, before we move on to that, did you have anything else to add on the unregulated unre- research lab? That is pretty fucking crazy. I agree. Uh, I don't think I have anything more on the unregulated research lab now uh, other than to say any one of those first two stories, the uh, Russian uh, oligarch connection to Abrahimovich through the investment firm or the unregulated research lab and sending stuff through the mail, et cetera, testing on humans, those alone, each one would have led to nine to 12 months of investigation and stories and reports and and leaks and more either one of those stories so together those two alone um, are going to shake the foundation of the industry in the commonwealth and maybe in other states as well the third topic i think is the most relevant for end consumers it's not as um public policy based as the first two and may i really quick the the, the thing about the first two if i if somebody put this it, it's a really short thing. I feel like it puts a good cap on the four, the first two. Would you agree that the reason the first two are so crazy and that discussion is so crazy is because here we have Cureleaf, America's biggest cannabis company, or however you want to. I've heard it described many different ways. And they've got that. That's the thing. It's like America's biggest cannabis company and the Russian ties. I feel like that really puts a cap on why this is such a huge like a like you said it makes waves the story so yes absolutely and if i'm the department of justice and this is the type of thing i'm looking at i'm thinking okay if this is a pathway right that we know about for potentially very dangerous money to get into the united states and out of the united states which is even more concerning 
What else is the regulated cannabis industry in terms of this financing and these structures being used to do? I've seen some of these management agreements, the way that these companies operate and lend money to each other. It is extremely convoluted. And the people who can understand it are not taking $180,000 a year to work for the Securities Exchange Commission, I assure you. Um, so I think that this is an industry-wide problem, financing. I think that there is more dirty money in the regulated adult use and medical use cannabis market than anyone realizes. And I would just implore the powers that be to understand that the issue is not a byproduct of the cannabis market. It is a byproduct of players who never should have been allowed in the cannabis market, which is why we need a stronger police power for regulators and the Supreme Court should stop protecting corporations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, again, I don't mean to keep extending this. I really want to get in the secret remediation machine, but it's just kind of funny when you look at how popular a show like Ozark is, and the whole concept of the show Ozark is to find cash-based businesses so that they can launder money through. I'm not saying that that's happening. I'm just saying I was hoping it would be a plot point in the last season. Spoiler, spoiler alert, it wasn't. They didn't use the Illinois Cannabis Dispensary as a way to launder money because it was all cash. I'm just saying, though, it, it's just kind of a funny thought. We can move on. <laughs> no, no. What's so funny is um, I, I wish I watched more uh, TV. There's so many good shows out these days. But sometimes late at night, I'll flick through YouTube shorts and um, I'll see like 45 second clips from Ozark. So my understanding of the show Ozark is just this amalgamation of out of sequence 45 second clips. So when you said that, I was like, OK. I can I can follow along enough with what he's saying right now to understand. Yes, yes, but also I have no idea. And I've done <laughs> that with uh, Boardwalk Empire as well. So I have these like kind of vignettes in my head from both of those shows, but just no idea, and it's completely out of context. But anyway, so yes, I, I yeah. that was funny you brought that up. <laughs> cool. So, so yeah, let's let's talk about this uh, last story and any anything else you want to mention um, that, that you think is substantive. Uh, yeah, the secret remediation machine. This is definitely an interesting one. The way you prefaced it with the out of order sign, according to your uh, source. So, yeah, um, and I think you know we talked a lot about this in the intro, which was good. But you know, remediation is an industry wide practice. You can see the. Uh, article in Forbes, Are You Smoking Nuclear Weed, I think is the title of it. I linked to it in my piece. Uh, really good coverage. Um, and the reality is, like I said, it happens, it, I think, for all Canadian products. Um, and it, it, it is an industry practice. That's not really the issue. Uh, you hit the nail on the head earlier. The issue is that um, a lot of companies hide this from consumers. Now, they don't need permission from the regulatory agency to do this. They, I don't even think they, you know, maybe this, I'm just having a thought. Maybe it would be good if state regulators required a label if product has been um, radiation um, so treated. I was going to say, I believe Canada does have that requirement. You know, you mentioned Canada earlier, and they've got that requirement for a few products, including cannabis. I can Google that really quick to try to fact check myself, but go on. I like the idea. Yeah. So I, I just think it would be good in the States. I don't think it's required now. Um, so I, <clears throat> oh, that is some good homegrown cannabis. I will say that. No reme uh, no radiation on that cannabis. Um, it, what I think would be uh, would be pertinent 
would be, again, not just that labeling, but also for regulators to need to um, approve it. If you're going to do it, it's important that there's transparency to it. And in the cure relief context, although they didn't need approval, uh, the employees uh, who uh, reported this information to me told me that it was indeed behind uh, a closed door when inspectors would come through, that it was something the company didn't want people to know about. And the impact, as we really dove in on earlier, is that the the bud composition, the, the flower composition, the chemical composition changes. Uh, it impact, it changes. It doesn't just impact terpenes. It, it converts THCA to delta-9, which is the same thing as basically decarboxylation. Um, and that, I mean, it's not, it's like a short, I'm sure it's not as long of a process as a decarb, but it's changing the product. And yes, that's reflected on the end panel. So, I mean, okay, that's transparent at least. But the point is that it's not inert. It it, it may not be causing someone to become the Hulk. Obviously not. I don't, right. I hope no one <laughs> thinks that is what we're saying, but it 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 is not inert. It does change the way the bud structure, um, the bud's chemical composition um, uh, presents. Absolutely. Yeah. So quick fact check on myself. Here's Canada's packaging and labeling guide, right? It's from the, you can see, and I'll link this in the podcast description for folks. Uh, it's from the Canadian government's website. So I'm going to do a control F, I, radi, oh, if edible cannabis, now here's one. If edible cannabis is irradiated, the international radiation symbol set out in subsection, blah, 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 such, or a statement such as irradiated, treated with radiation, or treated by irradiation must be displayed. On the PDP of the label, the symbol can be found on the food inspections website. Maybe let's see it. Food irradiation, because again, this is this is practice. It's not like it's like a cutting edge for cannabis that they're applying a practice from other industrial techniques. This is what these kind of companies are doing, by the way. They're farming at an industrial level, and so they need to. Um, apply industrial farming techniques so that, you know, these things. So um, here's some uh, irradiated foods in Canada. Now, I don't know what the United States looks like, but I'm sure it's similar. Um, I'm sure it's not too far off, right? Um, but yeah, you're, you're required to label that in Canada. So I like your idea there, Grant. And I think it should be standard in the United States. And I just want to add to the point of irradiation, um, yeah, very standard in the industry. In fact, we're going to be having a company that does irradiation come on the show and just kind of explain what their form of irradiation is and how it stacks up in, against others, right? Whether or not that would be completely objective, I'll be candid right now and saying it's a representative from the company. So, you know, yeah. And and part of what I always tell people, they ask me, how do I interpret what someone is telling me? Which is a very interesting question. I mean, you you don't go around life actively thinking about how you're thinking about what someone's telling you. That's I mean, that's a form of epistemology that I guess some people who are very self-reflective practice, but it's just it's not how we socialize with human beings. Uh, but I think that goes to what you're talking about, which is anytime you're consuming information in the modern world uh this is a trick i got from uh, orson welles's movie citizen kane and i i'll talk more about this because it involves some of my work i talked about earlier as well anytime you're uh, when i was an academic all those years ago at uh, boston college uh anytime you're consuming information in the modern age it's coming with a narrative container or a perspective uh and 
what that perspective is doing is alienating truth or another way to say that is alienating context. I think I like the word context more than truth because truth is such a wishy-washy uh, term these days, but context I think is something that we all can, and, uh, can understand. You lose context on something when someone frames it in a, a narrative container or a, an ideological perspective or an agenda or whatever it may be. Now, what's what I love about this is I'm a um, fourth generation Frankfurt School theorist. So Adorno, Mac, uh, Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer uh, started the Frankfurt School of Social Theory in the 1930s in Germany before they were persecuted by the Nazi regime for being Jewish. Uh, I'm also um, half Jewish myself. My family's Jewish. Um, so that's why I kind of got into discourse theory. I found this um, persecution and the fact that they were driven out of Germany very interesting. And then I learned what they were actually doing was they wrote a great book called The Dialectic of the Enlightenment, one of my favorite philosophical texts. It's kind of in the Kantian, Hegelian sort of mishmash, which is to say it's like it's more it's somewhere between like a categorical imperative, which is, you know, duty based ethics and like. Marxist critical social theory. It's it's somewhere between those two. And uh, they taught a gentleman by the name of Jürgen Habermas, a very famous European professor who taught my professor, David Rasmussen, who taught me. So I'm in that school. And they created in 1933 the text Dialectic of Enlightenment. And chapter eight of that book is called The Culture Industry. And if you read that chapter, Adorno himself lays out this great framework called degrees of simulation. And someone once told this to me as an example, and I, I have loved it ever since. Imagine you're in a room with your friend and your friend's cell phone. And I ask you to describe your friend's cell phone to me. You could do that. You, In fact, you'd probably have some memories. Maybe the cell phone got dropped at a bar. I don't know. It took a picture of a famous person, whatever. You'd have the most accurate context possible to describe that cell phone. Adorno would call that the first degree of simulation. Now, I could then have you take a picture of your friend's cell phone, right? Just, just out of context on the table, just a picture of the cell phone. And I could have you take that picture back to your roommate, say, who's never met your friend, never seen their cell phone before. And I could say, okay, you've got this picture, show it to them. They would then look at the picture. They could tell it's a cell phone. They could experience it, but they'd be experiencing it from the second degree of simulation. Their context would be a little bit less appropriate. It would be more alienated. So they see a you know, I don't know, a, mo a cell phone model, maybe a color, a scratch, a dent. Th they could experience it, but not the same way you would have in the moment in the room. Now, what if I asked your roommate who saw the picture of your friend's phone to write me a description of the phone? They could do that, right? Sure. And then I could take that written description. I think you see where we're going with this. All modern news is consumed from the third degree of simulation, which would be you reading that text about the picture of the cell phone. Right. Now, that's where Adorno and Horkheimer got us to with chapter eight of Dialectic of the Enlightenment. That was the framework they developed. Now, what I think is so cool about this is that Orson Welles, um, really cool guy, folks who might not have known, known about, know about him, please watch Orson Welles' interview with Dick Cavett from 1977, I think. It's 
amazing. You will learn everything you want to and more about Orson Welles, who was the son of a diplomat and then became a movie maker who took on like press barons. And Citizen Kane, which is probably the greatest film of all time, uh, was made as a critique of William Randolph Hearst, who owned the Hearst newspaper sort of conglomerate. And in his battles with Joseph Pulitzer, birthed yellow journalism, which combined with Edward Bernays, developed our modern media landscape defined by corporate propaganda and narrative framing and everything we talked about to begin this discussion. So if you've been following closely, you probably realize that Wells, uh, my theory is Wells read uh, Adorno and Horkheimer's text and realized that they had set up a problem, which is we're stuck in the third degree of simulation. I think Wells gave us a way out with Citizen Kane. And it's why I think it's such the quintessential piece of art because it solves a historical uh, problem uh, in a way that um, is hidden in plain sight. And what Wells says with that movie, folks who haven't seen it, um, please watch it. It's a movie that starts uh, with the famous phrase Rosebud. You've probably seen it parodied in The Simpsons. You've probably, it's a cultural sort of uh, icon. Uh, it starts with uh, the end of a man's life. Um, and it tells the story of the life uh, of that man's life then from the beginning through the perspective of five different people, all of whom who have their own bias. And what was Wells saying with that movie? If you want to find out the truth about anything, whether it's a person, an event, uh, a situation, you have to get as many perspectives as possible so you can amalgamate them together and pull out the kernel of truth that allows you to see what their narrative was manipulating. So your goal is to get back to that second degree of simulation, so to speak, by looking for people's bias and their narratives and their framing as just that, so that the kernel of truth can be pulled out combined with all those other kernels of truth you've gotten from those different perspectives, and then you can start to understand what you're being lied to about. If you can do that, you've mastered the modern art of consuming information, and you can liberate yourself from the kind of top-down propaganda, which Edward Bernays and some of those other forces we were talking about earlier, gifted to the world uh, in the 1920s and, and onward. And if we can do that, we can salvage this republic. The, don't mistake what I'm saying whatsoever. The implications of informed citizen participation are the integrity of the lawmaking process. So if you want corporations to be held accountable and you think it's inappropriate that there's a double standard, the only way to remedy that is informed citizen participation by way of breaking free from this third degree of simulation and starting to see these narrative frameworks for what they are so that truth can actually drive policymaking. And that's what my life's all about. So that was quite fun. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, I have to agree. I didn't expect to, to get that out of today's show. And I like, yeah, that's something I think I'm going to continue to unpack throughout the day. And I haven't seen that movie yet. I will be watching it tonight. Um, like tonight, because that sounds like a perfect way to spend my Saturday night. So, um, so we, we kind of got into that because we were talking about, you know, the, requirements labeling requirements and and everything else um it, i kind of wanted to make sure that we didn't stray too far from your story there and, and um any any other details on the the kind of under the what your story seems to lay out is that they were kind of do, doing this under 
literally behind closed doors. <laughs> yes. And I will come back to that. But what I want to say is, um, and I have a bad habit of, of, of betraying my own little um, idiosyncrasies. But if you go back and listen to what I just explained about degrees of simulation, what you'll realize is I was telling you how I did the reporting on this story. Got you. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said that because you, I, I, and I see what you're saying now. Thank you for, for laying that, like saying that more clearly. If I could illustrate it just shortly, I don't want to go too, too far on this, but like, like you said, you had one employee that described the, the sign, but then you had other employees that, like, like you said, you, and they didn't know each other. That was key. So there wasn't any, um, bias being almost spread for lack of better words between the perspectives um yeah am i picking up what you're putting down yeah and i think it applies in general uh to anything someone wants to learn about but in particular when engaging as a journalist i'll i'll speak more with that hat now i suppose you, anyone who approaches you with something has a reason for doing it and they're not going to wear it on their sleeve most of the time. Sure. Now I do because I'm just very direct and I'd rather, if I'm going to talk to someone, I'd rather them just know what I am doing and what I want. And I don't, I'd rather just be direct. Uh, but most people who approach a journalist will not do that because they're going to package it in a way that leads the journalist in a way to cover something that they want to have covered without saying it. Um, and your job, at least the way I think about it, is to what I call reconstruct um, the intent of the person approaching you and then determine if there is an agenda uh, or if there is It's an art form, uh, times um, put it into perspective how much it means to me that my colleagues in Massachusetts are people like Dan Adams, uh, Cassie McGrath, uh, Eric Casey, who we've talked about, uh, Shira Schokenberg, who sadly just left the beat uh, and went over uh, from Commonwealth Magazine to the Boston Globe uh, Opinion, which is amazing. Um, I'm very happy for her. Uh, but um, also Jess Bartlett, uh, who used to cover cannabis and now um, covers um, something else for the Globe. Um, she used to cover cannabis for the Boston Business Journal, now covers uh, something else for the Globe. Uh, there are there are people who are are once in a generation minds covering this industry uh, from the journalist kind of perspective in Massachusetts. And I've had the ability over four years to kind of watch them do their work. Um, and it has, I think, given me the tools to approach what are some very difficult situations where you have a number of people approaching you on a story um, all with their own agendas and the truth oftentimes is um, is fleeting it, it isn't why they're approaching you uh, they they're not they're not necessarily trying to give you a full story they're trying to do one specific thing and if you can piece together the truth out of that I mean, that's what history is, I suppose. It's the synthesis of of um, of a bunch of different perspectives. And I don't know. I don't want to get too far afield again from the radiation, but I think there's really something important here. And maybe that's what my bottom line is. There's something important here about the people who 
stopped this. I mean, it's not stopped yet, but the people who realized this had to be stopped. It is not easy to reflect on our own failings and shortcomings. In fact, I think it's probably one of the most difficult things to do in life. To do that in the context of an organization that clearly has a lot of power, clearly has a lot of resources, and clearly has a lot of history behind it, and then find a public duty out of that world in an attempt to change it, there's something special there. And I think it speaks to the fact that all hope is not lost. I wrote this at the end of my article. This industry is on the corporate level defined by a bunch of ruthless, self-interested players who would, if they could ban home grow, form police task forces to target the unregulated market, abuse their employees, um, shut down medical caregivers, take away patient access um, that's affordable. Uh, that's one level. But then there's another level. The, the, the real, the people, the human beings, the engines of these companies. And this is a story as old as, as organized labor um, or labor itself. The, the people who work 12 to 16 hour days who put in weekends, who do it because they think they're part of something bigger, working for the greater good. It must be the most agonizing thing in the world to do that for years and then realize in one fell swoop what you were a part of in hindsight and, and how much that must, how much heartbreak across how many lives um, that kind of thing must have induced. I just, I understand that millions of dollars must feel good. And I know it brings with it access to kind of temporal luxuries that maybe satiate emotional concerns, but I don't understand how executives can do that to people, cast them out and just, hope that raw th raw influence and power will stop them from speaking out it terrifies me it's a it's a terrifying commentary on our society it's the unspoken reality in america that i think no one wants to address because it means that every company is like that in some regard and that's really true um and i don't know that this is going to fix it. In fact, I know it's not going to fix it. But at the very least, I hope it, I hope it sparks two things. One, a discussion about public corruption and how this was able to happen. Um, but also, I hope it sparks a reverence and a respect for the people who spoke out, um, for the employees and the frontline staff, and even some of the people within the agency itself who realized that history wasn't going to change unless they acted, because we would not be talking right now if it weren't for their acts and their bravery. So I want to thank them and I want to thank you. And I went on a colloquy there, but I thought it was important. And I do think there's a larger um, picture here. And it is about the humanity of the, the employees of this industry. And I hope we all are doing this for them because otherwise there, there's really no point. Yeah. 
and and do do not apologize that was beautiful if i might say so myself and i'm gonna forgive me if this is cheesy with as eloquent and well-spoken as you just were the way i have been saying it uh is like cannabis is a gateway drug it's a gateway to politics and and by that i mean for folks that i i mean i know a few a few people in my life but just my anecdotal experience I got very interested in cannabis in this weird gray area we were in life. I felt it, it felt weird to put it, you know, shortly. Um, and um, it's ultimately what made me start to question why are things the way they are? Why is this the way that it is? And then you start to look into laws and regulations. And then you're like, oh, yeah, this is why they taught us that in school. This stuff does matter, <laughs> you know, like all it, right? So again, my experience is a, is maybe different than yours because you started in law and everything, so you obviously realized the value of of it and very early on. Um, but for others, like I say, I think that cannabis can serve as a gateway to these other topics. Um, you see how these things play out, and then, like you say, the question is, oh wait, this isn't unique to the cannabis industry. This isn't unique to this nascent industry, as many people say. This industry is mimicking many other industries. But it doesn't have to. And that's the that's the key. Entrenched industries in the United States prey on presidential um sort of frameworks to av- avoid oversight by regulators and government agencies in general. But when a new industry is born, you can take things like the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1897. I think it was updated in 1905, 1906. You can take things like the Robinson-Pacman Act of 1936 or 37, which more stringently applied the Sherman Act in the context of the alcohol industry. You can take things like the Antitrust Improvement Act, I think of like 1976 or whatever it may be. You can look at people don't realize that. A lot of what was supposed to supposed to protect this country from consolidated corporate influence over the lawmaking process was one informed citizen participation. If you read Federalist 10, which is one of my favorite essays, it's by James Madison, um, and it talks about why the republic is good to prevent the rise of moneyed factions. And if you read it, he basically says, listen. The, these factions are like natural to the human condition, right? Like the, the fact that we all want to make money and the fact that we can have like relationships with other people means there's always going to be moneyed factions trying to influence the government. That's, that's just right. what it means. So our job as a enlightenment era Republic is not to control the sources of faction. It's to control their effects on the lawmaking process. And if you read the the essay, which I recommend everyone does, he says, well, you know, what makes me yeah, I'm a little worried about this because it's the propensity of people to do this and the impact and it can inflame tensions and it can undermine the union and all of this stuff. But I'm not actually that worried because one, there's a divert. Remember, he's writing in like the 1790s. Oh, by the way, the Federalist Papers were newspaper editorials, serialized 
newspaper opinion pieces before they were published as a bound volume. Just so you understand what public discourse was like when this republic was founded, it was you reading the newspaper and Madison was writing an essay about what I just told you about. That was what the newspaper was in 1790. And um, so he he's he's writing this in an era when political parties weren't even really a thing. General Washington, when he was elected, was not elected as a Democrat or a Republican. And in fact, John Adams was not elected as a Democrat or a Republican. It's not till the contested election of 1800, which was actually between two Democratic Republicans, um, um, Burr and uh, Jefferson, that we actually see political parties come out. Then it was because of the British and French fighting um, the, the British and French war that we get the rise of political parties in the United States in 1800 with the um, um, Republic, the Jacobian Republicans of the Jefferson um, side supporting the French and then um, Hamilton and Madison and uh, President Washington and President Adams supporting the British, which is ironic. But anyway, so that's where we get political parties. And Madison's writing Federalist 10 in like 1790 when there were no political parties. And he's saying what makes me unconcerned about the rise of moneyed factions is that we have just so many political parties. They'll never be able to take over by way of a duopoly or anything, which is like two party rule. Um, and also informed citizens will always be there to provide a bulwark against the usurpatious drive of moneyed groups or something. And you can see that we lost the republic because of those two things, the consolidation of political power into two parties after the um, Reconstruction era and the lack of informed public discourse owing to the influence of Edward Bernays style propaganda on the public after 1930 and through to the modern age that that we were basically given a blueprint for what was going to happen. And unfortunately, the founders, I don't think, really built enough checks and balances into the Constitution against that centralization of control. And that's where we are, where why we are where we are today. Now, there was a point of all of that, uh, which was um, your initial question, uh, I think, had to do with uh how how this all happens uh, was it do do you remember what your yeah I, was? I said it was kind of cheesy but cannabis kind of gets people into yes okay yeah. so now let me get back to where I was the antitrust um yes. law and modern cannabis reform and coming federal legalization and even state level reform because the for so long in the history of the United States there's been a dearth a lack of cogent public participation and a centralization of political parties, we're at a place now where almost every industry is defined by what's called regulatory capture, where the companies who are supposed to be regulated actually write the regulations. The cannabis industry is the first time in a long time where authentic grassroots voices can just by virtue of a good idea and enough force of will impact the lawmaking process. And how federal legalization plays out, how legalization plays out in your state can sometimes come down to the words of just a few people. I think it was Margaret, um, was it Mead or Atwood? I always get them confused. I think it was Margaret Mead who said, um, never doubt the ability of a few uh, well-meaning uh, people to change history. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And that's why I think your insight is so poignant, because just by virtue of getting involved in an authentic way in grassroots cannabis policy, you can change the future 
you can impact how history plays out and you can do it in a way which helps any number of causes that you want to protect. You can help protect home grow when it otherwise might get banned. You can help stop uh, Amazon and big tobacco from taking over when federal legalization happens just by getting involved with groups that are doing, you know, uh, antitrust work on the federal level, like the Parabola Center. You can, uh, Get involved on your state level if, for example, like in Maine, you see the adult use uh, operators like Cureleaf and Theory Wellness trying to shut down mom and pop caregivers. Just go to a hearing. Say, I don't like this. If you know where the hearings are, if you know where the regulatory meetings are happening, if you know when you can go to public comment, your voice, not the voice of these corrupt corporations, are going to define the rules. And that will ensure that they stop doing things like, I don't know, having ties to sanctioned Russian oligarchs, uh, running unlicensed research labs and testing product on human subjects after sending it illegally through the mail, or uh, radiating cannabis and then not disclosing it to consumers. You can fix that. Just start getting active. Hell yeah, dude. That was, thank you, dude. This has been so much more than I thought it would be, but I knew like, I, I yeah, I already knew that I'd get a lot out of this, this show. So, uh, I have, I've had a really great time. I want to do this again with you. Um, I've, I've always wanted to get over to the East coast. So it'd be cool to do in person if we can make that happen. But by zoom, dude, I felt like I was in the room with you. You were, uh, you, you're, very well spoken and it was uh like i say a pleasure beyond words so oh you're so kind to have given me a platform i love talking about all of this and more uh yourself your audience i'm always happy you can talk directly to me if you message me i will talk to you especially if you like any of these topics or if you're an employee or if you have knowledge about a regulatory agency i don't care what state it's in i don't care what the topic is if you talk to me i will tell you all of my thoughts on this and more uh you can find me on a number just uh to close here you can find me on a number of different social media platforms i'm grant smith ellis across them all facebook instagram uh twitter patreon as i mentioned all of my work this is very important to me all of my work is always released free to the public uh, it's always going to be that way i will never put anything behind a paywall i believe in radical free access to information because it enables cogent public discourse which then wards off corporate malfeasance which then protects the regulatory apparatus which makes me very happy however if you do want to support my work and i it means a lot to me because then i can get coffee and i don't have to you know basically run out of money at the end of the month and look pathetic uh you can support me on patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash grant smith ellis for as low as three dollars a month i will give you access to some of the larger stories 30 to 45 minutes before they break you'll get it directly to your email inbox and well it's not going to give you access to anything um, that anyone else won't get eventually it will let you know that you're supporting the kind of work that these big companies don't want out there and i can tell you based on the past few days and the number of stock investors who are angry at me that they don't want any of this out there so thank you again i have so much fun listening to your show we will do this again in person or otherwise and and i've i've enjoyed every minute cole Hell yeah. Well, folks, I hope I hope our listening audience enjoyed it as much as I had. I have a feeling that they did. We'll see you on the next episode of the Chillinoy Podcast.